Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, we're going to be talking to a friend of the podcast, uh, Chris Wynn. Uh, Two of our first episodes uh, long ago, we're almost at the 100 episode mark, but two of our first episodes uh, were with Chris Wynn, and uh, so it's wonderful to have you back on the podcast. Welcome, Chris. Hi, thank you for having me back. I'm excited to be back. (laughs) Yeah, so you have been... You've been kicking ass. You've been, <laughs> been doing all the, you've been doing all this amazing stuff. Uh, you know, really, I mean, I, just just outstanding. I mean, like, so what's uh, what are you doing now? Can you tell our listeners what you're up to now? Yeah. So um, these days, you know, I've taken a little, a little break from just pure philosophy <laughs> and have been <laughs> have delved into the quote real world, <laughs> as people mm. call it. And uh, I've been working as uh, essentially a web developer, but also, you know, kind of an outreach person and, uh, you know, basically everything under the sun um, at a startup, a uh, tech startup. And I actually work at a privacy tech startup named Brave. Okay. So what is, what is Brave? Yeah. So uh, Brave is basically a browser. You know, it's kind of like Google Chrome or, or Firefox, um, except it's different in one very important respect, which is that it protects your privacy by default. OK, it blocks all ads and trackers, you know, right out of the box. Um, it tries to block all the harmful, invasive uh, tracking and cookies that, you know, all these big tracking companies try to put on you. So it takes a very pro privacy stance. And that's actually quite rare right now in the space because the space is pretty much captured by large advertising companies. So the example, example would be uh, Google or uh, even, even Firefox, right? Uh, Firefox is pretty much beholden to Google because they get all the revenue from a search deal with Google. So it makes it really hard for them to take a, a truly, you know, pro-privacy anti-tracking uh, stance because of that conflict of interest. And, you know, obviously with Google itself, it's a giant advertising behemoth. So it's pretty much a a fresh start on that front. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, this is this documentary that recently came out called the, the social dilemma on Netflix, which, um, is really, really good. And it has all of these sort of founding fathers and a couple of mothers of the, the social media platforms, people who were, you know, employee number four kind of thing, like at Instagram or at Facebook or Twitter or Google or uh, Snapchat and, you know, all these various things. And, and they, uh, they sort of say all this like crazy stuff about how much information they are stealing from you and using. And uh, yeah, I was amazed when I, when I saw this, uh, this documentary and I immediately you know, sent out messages to a couple of people, including uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb and Yuval Noah Harari and Sam Harris and a bunch of people. And, and apparently they, they interviewed Yuval Noah Harari. Um, he was one of the people that they contacted to have on and they didn't end up like including the stuff that he had said. But he deli- he specifically mentioned um, a bunch of businesses that were doing this stuff in a more ethical way, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and it, apparently one of the businesses that he mentioned was Brave. Oh, really? Right? He said, "Yeah." He said, "There are you can you can quote me on that." It, like apparently said, there's a bunch of different. He, he listed a bunch. He said, "Like you know, it's not as if you have to." completely uh you know throw your your iphone in the river you know (laughs) you don't have to completely like you know move to a cabin in the woods like you know ted kaczynski or something the unabomber like you don't have to like go off and uh you can still live in the 21st century and there, there are actually options available which are not as uh sort of a harm reduction strategy (laughs) like but yeah but i'm wondering the first thing i thought when i when i heard this um is if you're a company like that like like brave for instance like how do you actually make any money yeah i mean i understand i understand why it's virtuous i understand because like one of the guys that they have that they interview i can't remember his name but like one of the guys that they interview in the the social dilemma um, he was brought on to Facebook and he, he talks about how like basically Facebook had like this you know, massive numbers. They, they, when he joined on, they already had like billions of, of users and stuff like that. And so what they were looking at was how is it that Google has managed to like make money off this shit. Like how are they like make, like there's a couple of other businesses that were actually making money. And he said like, this was a big problem for a lot of tech companies. It's like, okay, we've, we've managed to get a huge amount of like, uh, you know, users and people are like buying in and they're doing all stuff, but we haven't figured out how to like monetize this. So he was brought in to like monetize it. Yeah. And he talks about like, you know, how he did that and how he, you know, ultimately feels kind of shitty about how he did that. So I guess my question to you is, is this company brave? Um, how do you make money <laughs> and, and be virtuous? Yeah. Exactly. How, how do you do, how do you do the Lord's work and still go to bed? Not hungry. 
<laughs> That's actually a really good question because it gets to the heart of really what's going on on the internet right now. I think a lot of people use the internet. They don't really think about, you know, how the internet is really funded. Um, you know, like why do uh, these people get up in the morning and write blog posts or write articles and publish them online for what seems to be free, right? Like why are people doing that? And uh, so right now, you know, all web content is basically funded through advertising. So digital advertising in particular. And, um, you know, that's basically Google's business. So let's say you have a blog, um, you can put banner ads, you know, next to your content, right? And so whenever someone reads your blog post, you get a couple cents or something like that, or a fraction of a cent for that view, uh, because the, the banner is, you know, within their line of sight for X amount of seconds. Um, pre-roll ads on YouTube, you know, when you watch YouTube content and you have a YouTube channel, um, the videos that actually play, uh, before the video, the actual video you want to see begins is actually revenue for the creator. So they kind of serve, they, they kind of serve like banner ads as well, um, next to the video content. So basically advertising is what makes the entire engine go around. But the whole problem is that this entire advertising superstructure, right, and what the entire web depends on for its existence, it fundamentally comes at the cost of users' privacy, right? So the only way for these ads to be anywhere effective is if they collect information about your interests, right? So they can show you ads that you'll actually click on. Otherwise, you're just going to be throwing ads and seeing what sticks and that doesn't work very well. So the problem with the existing tools to protect users and to reduce harm is that they only are kind of negative solutions. So all they do is they block ads, okay? But just blocking ads won't solve the problem because when you have enough people blocking ads, you demonetize creators, you demonetize writers, you demonetize websites. So the whole question is, how do you have an advertising system uh, that can support creators and support you know, um, publishers, but doesn't come at the cost of privacy? So that's what Brave tries to do. So what we do is that on the one hand, we have a negative solution, which is the built-in ad blocking uh, that blocks all ads and trackers um, that siphon away your data. And then on the other side, we actually have an entirely new ad platform. Okay. So advertising itself is not bad. It's just how you do the advertising. So we're trying to create an advertising platform that does not collect your data, but it's still able to match ads to users in a privacy respecting way. And in a way that will actually be interesting to them. Hmm. So I I'm wondering because like, um, you know, I, I remember after this was mentioned, um, I heard about this, that, that Harari had mentioned this thing about Brave. I went and looked up to see like what it was and everything. And like, I'm just wondering, how is it that you, Chris, as a Montreal homeboy, <laughs> how did you end up getting a job at Brave? <laughs> <laughs> they're like they're not here in Montreal. Like, how did they? How did you? How did you hear about this? And how did you end up getting a job at, at Brave? It just yeah. I need to hear this sort of the origin story of the superheroes, you know, narrative. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> yeah. So that's actually a good question. Um, so, you know, I was having the standard dilemma of, oh, I'm studying philosophy. I'm doing a degree in philosophy, but you know, what am I going to do after that? Right. I wasn't thinking of going to do my PhD right after. So I was like, how am I going to make a living? And uh, what I did was I also did a computer science degree as well at the same time. And so after I graduated, I became a web developer, you know, software engineer, web developer person, because uh, apparently that's hot and cool these days. So uh, that's what I was doing. And one day I was coding in a programming language called JavaScript, which is the most ubiquitous programming language in the world. It's on every single website. It's basically the language of the web. And I was like, hmm, I wonder who created JavaScript. You know, like I just wanted to read the origin story of JavaScript. So I Google JavaScript and it turns out that the creator is a man named Brandon Ike. And this was, I think, around 2016, 2017. And I find out that Brandon Ike is working on a new browser <laughs> called <laughs> Brave. And I'm like, whoa, that's cool. What's that? And around this time, too, you know, um, blockchain and cryptocurrencies and stuff were starting to get hot, too. It's like 2016, 2017. That was like the big, big uh, bubble. And... I was like, oh, that's interesting. I want to get into that as well. Like I always hear about it. You know, I went to Easter at someone's house and they were talking about Bitcoin. You know, that's usually like the sign of like a impending bubble. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So the creator of JavaScript has this new browser. He's also doing something in the space, you know, with blockchain. And I kind of, you know, kept that in mind and shelved it for a bit. And then coincidentally, I was in Singapore. My brother actually lives in Singapore. In, uh, I love Singapore. Yes, yes. Oh my I, god! <laughs> I heard you. This yeah. is like you know. I've I've told you like if if when Annalise and I were figuring out where we were gonna live when we decided we wanted to start having kids, uh, we had we we sort of did this deep dive on the world, and we came up with uh, Montreal ended up being like our number one, and Singapore was our number two. <laughs> but so you were in Singapore to see your brother. Yeah, yeah. So I and was then, in Singapore. Then what happened? Yeah, so I was in Singapore, and coincidentally, uh, Brendan was going to Singapore for a talk. And I actually didn't know about this in advance. I only found out last minute that he was actually in Singapore, uh, you know, not too far away from where I was staying. Um, and he was giving a talk about Brave and what's called the basic attention token. That's like the blockchain side of our of, of Brave. Um, and I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll go there. And I found out that there was a, um, a meetup afterwards. So I went there and I, I had started reading about Brave and Bad. And I, I basically volunteered there a little bit uh, at, this, at this meetup event. And after the meetup, um, I found out that he was at the hotel bar <laughs> in Singapore. So I basically just, you know, came up to him and I was like, hey, like, are you Brendan? Can I sit down? And we started talking. And after about like an hour or two, uh, I think he realized that I really cared about the project and I knew a lot about it. And I had already been, you know, volunteering earlier in the night. So, yeah, after that, the rest is history, basically. And now I'm at Brave. It's a total coincidence. <laughs> wow. That's, yeah. that's, a, that's like a total like Horatio Alger story. <laughs> like, wait, like, it's completely fantastic. So, I mean, I guess... You know, one of the, the initial questions I have is, you know, I know that, uh, you know, Alfred Nobel, who invented dynamite, you know, TNT, 
he felt so guilty about like the ways in which this technology was being used that he ended up creating the Nobel prize to try and like redeem himself for all the damage that had been done. And this is a, a common, you know, pattern with like uh, Carnegie and with like, even with the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation. So I'm wondering to what extent is brave, like actually uh, like a viable alternative to what's going on? Uh, or is it just sort of an attempt to, to sort of redeem, um, you know, redeem, you know, like basically uh, uh, kind of Brendan and I like looking at, at all the horrible ways in which like the Patriot Act and various other, the, the various mm-hmm. ways in which JavaScript has been used to um, kind of collect data and, and do all these like sketchy things. And that, you know, is, is Brave basically like actually um, a viable alternative to all these things or is it sort of a Hail Mary, like I want to get into heaven? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, I definitely think it's uh, maybe it's both. Um, I, I definitely know that, um, you know, Brendan sometimes refers to JavaScript as his terrible child, you know, because mm-hmm. he sees the way that I've it's heard that been... before. The guy on Radio Lab, he, he mentioned the same thing that Brendan Eichlich sees this as like, he feels like, oh, God, you know, cringe. <laughs> yeah, so he created JavaScript in 10 days. And I'm not sure if he knew. Uh, even back then, how much of an impact it would have on the internet. Because literally everything is built in JavaScript, including tracking scripts and a lot of the bad things on the internet. So um, Brave is basically, you know, one way of kind of pulling all that back. And Brennan was, didn't just create JavaScript, but he was really there for, you know, really the beginning of the internet, the beginning of the browser. He was at Netscape, I think in 1995, and Netscape, if you remember, had this browser called Netscape Navigator. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yep. and uh, some some other you know browser and a bunch of other products. And uh, I think they went like head to head with with Microsoft in the early days, and it didn't end up good for them. Uh, <laughs> but he ultimately um, went on to also co-found Mozilla, which developed the Firefox browser, which became the number one browser in the entire world in 2009. And I remember like growing up in high school, Firefox was all the rage, you know, like you were not cool unless you used Firefox. <laughs> if you used Internet Explorer, you were a loser. So, <laughs> so yeah, he has, so it's not just, you know, like a random uh, Hail Mary, like, oh, maybe this will stick or maybe it won't. I think he really sees, um, you know, all of these technologies that he saw from the beginning being abused. And he was like, this is, we need to fundamentally rethink the way that the internet is structured, right? Um, and so what he wants to do with Brave and Bad is basically create an entirely new ecosystem that doesn't you know, rely on the collection of people's data, but can still monetize the web. So, so basically what we're going to do is uh, create an advertising platform that will not rely on data collection and will still be able to, you know, sustain, sustain what makes, what gives the internet value at all. And it's actually 
pretty popular. Like it's really starting to catch on. So we're only a few years old, Brave, and we already have 18.3 million uh, monthly active users and over wow. 600 million daily active users. Yeah. So it's really not just like a, a niche a niche product or whatever. I think maybe it starts off as a niche product, like a niche privacy product. But I think Brennan really had the foresight and the prescience to see uh, how all of all of this, you know, tracking, surveillance, you know, privacy violation, all this would culminate in, you know, the, the situation we have today, which, you know, leads to things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal, uh, which leads to um, mass, you know, data leaks, mass data collection, um, yeah, so on and so forth. Basically, the, the disaster that we have today on the internet. So I really think that, that this is his way of, in some sense, redeeming um, JavaScript. <laughs> But also, it's it's not just like a little hair, Hail Mary. I think he's really sees this as a genuine opportunity to completely overhaul the way that the internet works. Yeah, I, I still okay. Maybe I'm I'm not I'm not hearing this correctly. I still don't understand. Okay, just to give you yeah. like a kind of an analogy here. I remember um, my sister was working as a a bartender at a bar on. Uh, Crescent Street for for years, and there was this. There's a little bit of a controversy because um, they would have shows with uh, different kinds of bands, like everything from like like rockabilly to like punk to like you know reggae bands to hip hop bands, all, all these different acts, right? And they ended up like the the boss, uh, the owner, ended up like not wanting to have any reggae shows or reggae DJs anymore. And there were people who said like, Oh, this is like, um, because of, you know, racism against like, you know, Caribbean, African, Canadian people and stuff like that. And actually like the, (laughs) the owner said, no, the, the problem is not that it's just that like we make our money off of selling booze it's not off of like the entrance fees that, you know, in the same way that the internet makes money off of advertising, we make our money Mm -hmm. off of selling booze and this particular crowd, they tend to like get stoned before they come to the show. Or if they're going to drink, they'll have like a couple of friends who have a cooler in the trunk of a car outside and they'll go out to like have a cigarette and grab like a beer out of like the trunk and drink it. And they're not, they're not spending money on alcohol. And so that's why we're banning these shows. It has nothing to do with any prejudice. And it's just because this is our business model and like the way in which people are getting fucked up at our, like, you know, at our place, these shows, it's like, we're not making any money. And he, he said, it's so bad now that like none of my employees will work reggae nights they've basically said like, I'm not working those nights because I make no tips. Uh, I'm, it's a waste of a shift. Like it's like, Mm -hmm. so, you know, when I first heard about like brave and I was like looking into it, I thought, okay, this is like a really cool idea. I love it, you know, for sort of philosophical reasons and idealistic reasons. Yes. I don't want people to be selling my data, you know, to Cambridge Analytica and stuff like that. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. But like a reggae show at, you know, this bar that my sister used to work at, 
how can you possibly make money? Yeah. So, so in the advertising platform that we set up, um, we actually, it's called like the brave ads platform. Um, we actually pay the user 70% of what the advertiser pays. What? And then we, yeah. <laughs> and then we keep 30%. <laughs> so hopefully how, that 30% that keeps us alive. <laughs> now I so feel like say, one of those paid people on an infomercial. But, but seriously, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. How does that make any sense? Yeah. So um, basically for us, we realized that, you know, we need to give users an incentive to uh, see ads, right? We think like by default, they have a right not to have their privacy violated. Um, they have a right to control their browsing experience and stuff. Um, so we give them a lot of like default control, but we, but we give them an incentive. So we say, if you want to see ads, even though you're not, you don't even give up your privacy or anything, but if you want to see ads um, and you want to support, you know, people, uh, you want to support creators, you want to support publishers, um, we'll actually pay you 70% of the ad revenue that we receive through our ad platform. So let's say an advertiser, you know, has a $1 million ad campaign with us. We actually take $700,000 of that and disperse it to our users. And then the 30% is what is our revenue at Brave. Wow. You know what this actually reminds me of? And you you can sort of tell me if you think I, this is a specious comparison, but like (laughs) it reminds me of um, in Germany, when they set up all of these um, wind turbines and these solar panels and they plugged them all into the power grid. Mm. And so basically you sort of, um, if you have like, you know, 10 really sunny days. And so you're like absorbing, like you get a lot of power in your photovoltaics uh, that um, you may end up having like, collecting enough power that you can do everything that you need to do in your house, your, your air conditioning or your heating, your, all your electricity, all of your, your washer, dryer, dishwasher, all that stuff. Um, but if you go over a hundred percent, then all the excess energy is like, just sort of goes into the grid and they actually pay you mm-hmm. for for the power that you are harnessing. So they, they pay you and they basically like, um, they put that into your, into your electricity bill, to your power bill. So you can sometimes get like a, you know, imagine if here in Quebec, like if you could get like a hydro Quebec bill where they'd be sending you a check for 200 bucks because you know it happened to be really windy or really sunny for a couple of days in a row, and they you were like a net producer of energy, which then was like put back into the system, mm-hmm. right? And they um, and down in um, where well now my Annalise's parents, my wife's parents are living in New Jersey now, but they're living in, in Massachusetts for for a while and uh, I remember when we were down there they were uh, they were putting like uh, they were putting these solar panels on people's houses at, all over the place and they had this like fantastic deal where if you agreed to get the solar panels put on uh, you'd get all these like tax breaks associated with it 
but they also said, um, you know, you will be plugged into the grid and we'll actually pay you if you end up like producing more power than you need. So it, it seems like what you're describing in terms of the revenue model is, is sort of interestingly kind of analogous. So if you accept ads, um, there's like a profit sharing program. Yes, exactly. So there's a revenue sharing program, essentially. And I guess, you know, the, the analogy, if I, if I try to stretch it, like your eyeballs are the power <laughs> and you're being rewarded essentially for your attention. So, uh, what's, so I can talk a little bit about, you know, this aspect of it because I think it's, it's obviously very important. So we have a digital advertising platform. It works like other advertising platforms in the sense that you have, you know, publishers or creators. Those are people who, own websites, you have users, and you have uh, advertisers, you know, people who want to sell an idea or goods and services and so on, right? Um, and uh, the whole point is that uh, when, when they buy uh, advertising in our platform, the money goes into the platform, and then uh, it gets split or shared between Brave and the user. And we always make sure that the user gets at least as much as we do or more. So in the standard case, they receive 70% and we receive 30%. Yeah. So there definitely is a, a revenue sharing model at play. Yeah. Okay. And, but, but what I don't yeah. understand is like, okay, maybe this is like me just being like an idiot, but like, no, I yeah. understand that like, okay, let's say Apple or, or Google or Facebook or, or Twitter or Instagram, they sort of by observing my behavior, Mm-hmm. They figure out what my preferences are. And based on their knowledge of my preferences, they sort of come to a conclusion about what products I might like. So if I end up like, if I mention Star Wars in a bunch of searches and a bunch of posts, I suddenly get like an ad for the whatever, the Star Wars box set. Or the, you know, I get like an ad for something which makes sense if you've been monitoring my behavior and my, my choices, right? my preferences. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if, like Brave, if you decide that you're not going to save information about your users, if you're not saving information about my preferences, how do you know which ads but you know let's say i choose like okay um i'm okay with you sending me ads as long as you're gonna like give me a cut of the take you know (laughs) so um (laughs) like uh how do you even know what to send me if you're not paying attention to my preferences yeah that is like the greatest possible s question that you could ask because that really gets to the heart of why bat and brave is a complete you know new paradigm like you know taking the rug from under the status quo completely turning everything upside down okay so this is what we do so actually let's start off with what you know facebook does like like you said so what they do is when you visit a website let's say um the moment you land on the website there are a bunch of let's say banner ads right but what goes in those banner ads how do we match those banner ads to you so how does Facebook uh, or, or these ad networks, let's say Google, uh, match these banner ads to you? So the moment you load the website, 
all your data basically gets sent out to a system called a real-time bidding system. And your, your information is, you know, shot around through thousands and thousands of servers and backgrounds. People bid on, oh, I want this person. This person's interested in cars. This person, uh, you know, went to these websites in the past five days or something. Um, they all bid on your information. And then whoever wins the bid gets to show you the ad, right? So that's how the existing system works. And your data is sent out uh, everywhere. So what we do, this is the big, 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 you know, crazy innovation, is that we take that entire matching process, all of that, you know, that data siphoning and all that stuff, we just put all, we put a giant net around it, and we actually just put it into your browser itself. So, Oh, my God. Yeah. So instead of... <laughs> <laughs> so it's... Okay. Um, yeah. So it's preloaded. Yeah, so exactly. So in, instead of taking your data and shipping it out to an external server to, you know, match um, and, and then serve the ads to you, what we do is that we put all of that, you know, machine learning, all of the ad matching, all of the interest matching into the browser itself. And the cool thing is that your browser already has all of that information, right? It already has your entire browsing history. It already, it can already see what you're searching for on Google, so the whole point is, well, why send that data anywhere else? Why leak it to anybody else? All you need to do is just keep that data where it already is, which is already in your browser, secure on your own device, do the matching there, and then the browser can be the one to deliver the ads to you, right? And if you want those ads to show up as banners inside a page, well, guess guess what software renders the website? The browser. So you know, if, if you're a website and you want banner ads, to show up on your site, we can do that with the browser. We can just say, oh, insert a little banner when you're rendering the page, uh, insert a, a, a banner ad there. But the banner ad is matched to your interests locally. The whole thing happens only on your device. So at no point do we ever collect any of your data, but we're still able to match ads to your interests. This is, you know, I think the idea that the only way of matching ads to people's interests uh, like the the only way to match ads to people's interests is if you collect their data, right? That's I would say that's the current axiom. That's the unquestioned paradigm that we have today. And what Brendan has done is completely it's what, it's what seemed like completely you know, obvious to me. Yeah, exactly. It seems. But like, what you're you know, saying, what you're saying, is actually it it exactly. actually, it actually makes perfect sense. But I've never thought about it before. Me neither. Uh, honestly, the first time I read about it, I was floored. I was like, that is genius. I've never thought of that. Because you always think, you know, it's basically like, it's like the fifth, it's like the fifth postulate or the, the parallel postulate, uh, you know, in Euclid's elements, right? We all think that, you know, uh, parallel lines will never intersect or something. And it's just, it's so unquestioned. It seems so self-evidently true, but it turns out that it's actually false. That's why I think that Bat and Brave are actually like that standing for basic attention token, which is what you get paid for, for your attention. Um, I think it's genuinely a paradigm shift in the same way that, you know, non-Euclidean geometry was a paradigm shift or, you know, Einstein's uh, re- theory of relativity was a, was a paradigm shift. It's, it's truly an incredible technology. And, and you're, you're going to see that that's where the world is bending towards. You know, we, today we kind of look at, the, the privacy landscape and we're so, it's so grim. It looks so grim. You just see, you know, every 
every two months, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is testifying before the Senate or something in the U.S. Um, and we're like, man, like, when is this going to end? Like, how much, how much data collection is there going to be? When is it going to stop? Uh, and, and we kind of feel like our hands are tied. Like, you know, there's no way out of it. Like, if we want to access content online for free, we're going to have to give something up in return, which is our data. And what Brave does is fundamentally prove that that is a false dilemma. And we're starting to really pick up steam now because people are starting to realize that there is a third way. Yeah, I, I, I see sort of a, a more, I don't know, a more obvious analogy is to, is to the whole idea of like a, like a Swiss army knife, right? So when I, when I deal with this in, in my classes where we're talking about like what is human nature and, you know, what is the appropriate role of, of let's say like men and women or, fathers and mothers and things like that and and the point that i always make to students which which i find what you're saying really sort of is is bringing this to mind is um is that well actually when you have a highly social species like homo sapien um which for most of our evolutionary history we lived in not very large groups you know, we're talking like sort of maybe 50 to 200 people ups. Uh, so we couldn't afford to have a high degree of specialization. So it's sort of like um, when I was a kid, you know, we would play against like these hockey teams from like small towns in rural Quebec. And often the town was really small. So they they didn't have enough young people to have like a deep bench and so what they would have to do, and I think this has actually been the human norm throughout our evolutionary path, is everybody on the team had to know how to play offense, defense. Uh, you'd have, you, you had to have a bunch of people on the team that could play goalie. You had to have a high degree of like sort of um, people being able to play numerous positions, right? And so uh, you had, this is where I've got this idea that like, human nature, we are by nature sort of like like Swiss army knives. So there may be some people who are, um, for various reasons, better at playing particular positions and better at particular roles. But um, what has made us successful as a species is having lots of people who um, can do every position. It doesn't mean they can do every position as well, right? But, but men should all be good at mothering, for instance, right? And and women should all be good at fitting if push comes to shove, right? And everybody should be good at doing different positions. And so uh, this, you know, I know this one class I'm teaching this semester, I'm going to mention this brave thing to them. But, but the idea that like all the ads are preloaded on your server actually makes like a, a lot of sort of intuitive sense to me, right? That the idea that like it, it's far better to, rather than specializing and centralizing, it's far better to sort of have um, all of these possibilities um, sort of out in the, the extended yes. members of the node as possibilities yes, yes. right there, right? Yes, rather yes. than having centralized 
uh, sort of like, you know, Soviet <laughs> kind of like <laughs> cagey, like rather than having like centralized control of the whole system where you have to have uh, every, you can actually sort of put all of the possibilities in each of the, the nodes on the edge of the network and that that actually makes the network far more robust and and interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That idea, I think the the name for it in uh, in the industry is like edge computing, right? What we're doing is that we're basically moving all of the machine learning, all of the edge computing. I yeah. thought it was distributed network. It is. Yeah, it is. I guess it is distributed, but the computations are basically happening uh, on the edge, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, these are just one of these are just the buzzwords that go around uh, on this. But yeah, it, it's exactly what you said, which is that instead of having all of the ad matching and the machine learning going on in some Google ad server, right? What we actually do is we take all of that and we do all of the computing on the edge, so to speak. So in the actual nodes that are you know that are seeing the ad. So on your actual computer, that's where the matching is actually occurring. That's where you know all the computation is going on, and. Uh, that that definitely makes the system a lot more robust, and the 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 biggest benefit obviously is that your data never has to be centralized into some server that could be compromised, right? And it doesn't need to be collected; like everything can just stay on the edge. And the idea of decentralization is is I think really it's really big in our DNA because the other aspect of Brave, which is basically blockchain. <laughs> you know, sometimes I feel almost embarrassed to talk about blockchain because it, it blew up so much um, in the past several years. And it's almost like a meme now to say that blockchain actually solves, you know, an issue because blockchain can solve everything, apparently. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, but you want to be like that, that old guy uh, in, in The Graduate, like that famous movie where he says to uh, the character, he's like, I got one for, word for you, plastics, right? <laughs> like yeah, the guy, yeah. the guy, like the guy's just graduated. The graduate has just graduated, and uh, and he says, and he so he he sounds like a kind of a. And David Brooks was was making fun of uh, blockchain stuff, and he says, you know, the <laughs> blockchain, the the blockchain people, they're sounding more and more like that guy in the graduate who says, "I've got one word for you, plastics." <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I understand yeah. your reticence. Yeah, exactly. So, like, that's why, you know, sometimes I feel embarrassed saying it, but th- this is actually one of those cases where blockchain actually changes things. And it's actually a real application of, you know, a distributed network because blockchains are distributed networks. And, you know, a, a big problem in the status quo of advertising is that people don't know, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. Okay. There's like a, a there's a network of like a bajillion. Uh, servers they're all centralized they're not it's not organized in a distributed manner they're all centralized but there's thousands of them and you know they're passing data from you know to each other uh you know each one has to trust the other one to say oh you know this is how much you owe me because i gave you you know this fragment of john's data and this other one gave me you know this fragment so you owe me like 0.5 cents for this bit and that that bit It's, it's there's no transparency whatsoever it, it, there's the system is rife with fraud and it's completely opaque. People's data is being lost everywhere. Money's being lost everywhere as well. So the great thing about blockchain is that it actually can, you know, perform computations and do all these, uh, you know, make all these payments in a way that is trustless in a way that doesn't, 
you know, require you to trust me when I say, oh, you know, I owe you this much or you need to pay me or you need to pay this person that much. It's what we're aiming for is, you know, developing all of this ultimately on the blockchain, which we're doing over time. It's a really, really, you know, Herculean effort. Uh, But the idea is to move this entire ad system onto the blockchain itself so that at any point people can audit it, people can see the computations that are going on behind the scenes because everything in a blockchain is essentially open for public viewing. That's, uh, that's our goal is to make sure the, the underlying machinery, even though individual users data is completely private, we want to make sure that, you know, all the, the uh, machinations on the back end, you know, are totally visible and there's no one cheating each other. So you know that if you saw X many ads, you're going to get paid this much. And that if you're, if you're a blog owner and you had X many people come to your website, you know that you're getting paid how much you're supposed to. And you're not just trusting that Google is paying you out as they promised that they would. Okay. And, and what about, you know, I, one of the first things that I, I sort of thought about when I heard about this was um, I have friends who are living in Hong Kong, uh, living in Wuhan, living in Taiwan. And uh, they, very often cannot access um, things like this. Like they couldn't access for a long time. I had friends in in Wuhan who couldn't access like Firefox, who couldn't Mm -hmm. access. There were all these various like uh, blocks. So I'm wondering um, how, I'm trying to think how to ask this delicately, but like how easy is it for, um, governments that are worried about something like brave to uh, cock block brave (laughs) and to basically, and to like prevent them from like, like, you know, I understand that they, that they are sort of providing this more free situation, but how easy is it for uh, nation states or corporations that find something like this annoying to get around it? Yeah. So, um, you know, for instance, I think we don't have our uh, Brave app on the app store in China or something like that. So there are ways that governments can try to block uh, the distribution of, you know, certain kinds of software. Uh, Like, for instance, Brave, because we're a privacy browser, we actually bundle in Tor. Uh, In case people don't know what Tor is, Tor is like allows you to have a completely encrypted, you know, browsing experience where no one can snoop on what you're doing. It was created by like the defense department, like the the underlying technology. Um, So it's really, really, you know, strong form of anonymization and encryption. Uh, And so sometimes governments don't like that. (laughs) So they'll try to block, you know, the distribution of, of software like Tor software or Brave and stuff like that. Um, The, the good side, the bright side is that Brave is actually a completely open source piece of software. So um, what does that mean? That means that literally every single line of code that we write, you know, for the browser is open, you know, to see. And as long as you can get your hands on our code, you can actually compile the software on your own computer and then boot it up on your own machine. So you don't need to rely necessarily on, you know, uh, downloading it from us or downloading it from an app store. You know, if oh, you're wow. sufficient- is, is is that why? Yeah. Oh, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. So is that why it looks so much like Google Chrome? 
Yes, exactly. So, oh my god! Okay, <laughs> I was wondering because it, it it looks and it kind of moves like Google Chrome. Yes, yes. So basically, I'll give you a two second rundown of of you know the under the hood of Brave. So Brave is based on a project called Chromium. Okay, Chromium is like you can think of that as like the underlying engine of the Google Chrome browser. Um, the thing with Chrome is that Chrome is not just Chromium, it's Chromium plus Google's own proprietary closed source layer, you know, and you don't know what they put in that layer, but it's, you know, it's basically all the stuff associated with their ads business and, and so on and so forth. So what we do is we take the Chromium source, which is it's excellent engineering. It's excellent code. The Chromium base is just incredible. Um, and we rip oh, out. It's, all it's very, the, el- it's very elegant code. Yeah. Yeah. So we rip out all of the, the Google spyware and we basically <laughs> A, a brave layer on top, which remains completely open source. So our entire code base is open source, you know, not just 70% or 80%, like all of it. So if you have access to our source code, you know, and I guess that's easier to, uh, you know, to distribute than anything, um, you can compile the software on your own machine and then you will have brave on your own computer. That's like the beauty of open source software. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, what do you see as like the main kind of uh, barriers to 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 this thing growing? Yeah. So, the the thing is, I actually don't see uh, major barriers <laughs> to us growing because we're growing so fast and it's so promising. At least, you know, um, we're growing at like an incredible pace. You know, I remember uh, really not long ago when we reached 1 million users and we were like, yeah, we have 1 million users and we were going to, you know, uh, brag about that. And then now we have 18.3 million users and it's been like, you know, two, three years max uh, since then. So we're growing at a really rapid pace. Um, I think maybe the biggest barrier to adoption is just that, you know, we're really going against some very deeply entrenched interests, right? We're going against Chrome, uh, Google, um, and a lot of the established people who don't want their lunch taken away. <laughs> we're, we're really presenting a completely new model of, of advertising and of, of web monetization. And people are going to be defensive of that. That's why you see, you know, some websites uh, now, if you use an ad blocker, right, they, they hit you with a pop-up and they say, you know, um, you're using an ad blocker, turn, the, turn off your ad blocker in order to enjoy our content. So they're basically giving you an ultimatum. And I think that I, th- I don't think that that will ultimately last, but I think at least maybe in the short run that could, you know, serve as a kind of impediment. I think in the long run, what they'll realize is that the best thing is actually to ban, you know, the, the conflict that they have uh, like publishers have uh, with users and to realize that there is a way where users can win and publishers can win and advertisers can win, you know, and, and that is our, our model. Our, our stats actually bear this out too. So um, the advertising platform has been insanely successful so far. Uh, you know, right now we have a lot of, you know, really lead gen companies that are willing to, you know, experiment with a new platform. And uh, we've also seen some big mainstream brands, you know, advertise there as well. So Pizza Hut and, you know, Home Depot and so on. Uh, but right now our click-through rate which is like the main metric that you use in the advertising industry, you know, what's the percentage of people who see your ad and then click through our click through rate is about 9% on 
on average. And the industry average right now is about 1.2, I would say. Wow. And yeah, so we have like crazy, crazy, you know, click through rates. And it's because users opt into the system. And I, I don't think that this was even known like a priori or ahead of time. But when you make a, an ad system opt in and you give people, you know, reason to turn it on, you give them incentive and they know that their data is not being, you know, siphoned off and it doesn't impact the browsing experience. It doesn't slow down their web page loading speeds. Um, people treat that more like a Costco membership than they do, or like a membership in a club than they do, you know, just normal ads. So a lot of the times when you advertise in, in the Brave ads platform, uh, it, people almost feel like it's a, like a recommendation, you know, it's like, oh, I'm getting an ad, like I'm being recommended because I opted into this platform. And now it's, you know, it's saying, hey, maybe you should take a look at this product, take a look at this service. So people feel, you know, really good when they engage with those ads, whereas they kind of feel like they're a sucker when they click on, you know, any other spammy ad that they would see online. So I think that it's a, it's a really deep part of the psychology that I don't think people have fully appreciated yet, but I think will really change advertising uh, in the future. Like that's, that's definitely the future and the stats are bearing it up. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I kind of, you know, I remember I, I heard all the hype about Firefox back in the day and I tried it um, a number of times and I, you know, I downloaded it onto a bunch of my devices and I ended up like removing it, uh, you know, not because I didn't, you know, I, I liked, I liked it in theory but it was sort of like being a vegetarian, you know, it's like, sort of, <laughs> it's like, I like it in theory, but in practice, it kind of fucking sucks. Like I, I kind of, like I found Firefox very often. It was like, it was slow. It was laggy it would crash mm-hmm. often. It was like not a very, so, you know, one of the things I like about what you're saying about um, brave is that from your description of how the, the architecture works, it sounds like, the kind of thing that actually would be really, really fast, right? It would actually have like way less impediments to exactly. its, its speed because of the fact that stuff is like preloaded and the fact that it's not constantly like sort of uploading all of this data to some like kind of big brother to decide what to do with it and stuff like that. Like that all of those decisions would from it, a user's standpoint actually make it like really successful because it, because I think ultimately there, there are a minority of users who are very sort of ideological in one direction or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and will make decisions based on um, these sort of moral considerations. I think a lot of people end up just making making decisions based on convenience and so if you're if you're you know if if brave is just is fast and easy and you know i mean the fact that they're paying you 70 percent of the ad revenue you know the fact that they're not sharing your information with big brother i'm sure that's like you know a big um, and a plus for most people, but I think yeah. the, the number one thing is: Are you actually going to give me a product that works smooth and fast? 
Exactly. And that's why I think it's so important. Like when I, when I talk about Brave, I, if I had to sum it up in one sentence, it's basically, you know, it's Chrome, but better. <laughs> so you don't need to relearn how to use a browser. And, and, you know, we, so Brendan actually created Mozilla and he actually was, you know, the co-founder of Firefox, right? So one big question we get asked all the time is, well, if you guys know the Firefox codebase so well, like why do you guys use a Chromium base and not a Gecko slash Firefox base? And the reason was, you know, at the beginning, uh, we did start off with a Firefox slash Gecko base, but I, when 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 uh, our CTO and Brennan did the you know all these head to head tests at the time, you know the Chromium base just pulled ahead on every single metric, and you know by that time too, Chrome was completely dominating. And we don't want to have users have to relearn like a browser experience. What we want to do is you know you boot up Brave, you install it, you know you download it, you install it, and you can literally press import my data from Chrome, you press enter, and then your entire Chrome experience is replicated, except with all the stupid spyware ripped out, right? That's what we want to create. And, and that's why, you know, people are really coming over to Brave because it's not a big, it's not a big change. Um, one of the great things about Google, for instance, like Google Chrome is that it, it, uh, it can sync all of your data, right? You, you log into uh, your Google account. And then if you have like multiple laptops or multiple devices, it syncs all your data. The only problem is that this data isn't encrypted. So Google can technically see, you know, what you're syncing across all your devices. That includes your settings, your history and so on and so forth. And so what we do is we, we say, well, you know, that's a great thing, but how about we just encrypt the entire thing end to end so that, you know, it, it behaves just like Chrome that you're used to. You can sync all of your stuff between all your devices, but, you know, your privacy is never violated, you know? So that's really what Brave is. It's actually a great product. It's basically Chrome on steroids. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why people aren't using it. There's literally no reason not to use it. It's just better, period. Yeah. Well, there was, uh, there's this guy, I'm totally blanking on his name, but uh, he he works on like um, uh, child child pornography. But he, of course he doesn't call it child pornography. He says it's like, it's basically um, sort of a, what is he? He has like a rebranding of it, which actually makes a great deal of sense. He says you should actually think of it as like um, a record of a crime, like a mm. sexual assault against like minors and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, Sam Harris had him on, on the, uh, the making sense podcast a couple of weeks ago. And, it's a very disturbing. It was a really, really disturbing episode. Um, but one of the things uh, he asked him at a certain point, about about halfway through the episode, he said, "You know, what do you think are like the biggest uh, dangers? You know, kind of in the future." And he said, "Well, I think what's really dangerous right now is you have these various kind of servers that are out there." that are totally encrypted and you have Mark Zuckerberg standing there for Congress saying, we're going to completely encrypt messenger. We're going to totally, you know, we're going to, we're going to set it up so that you can do whatever you want Mm -hmm. online and nobody can see what you're doing. And he said, you know, the, the amount of like, um, sort of, 
child pornography and the amount of exploitation of children that has happened since uh, the internet has, it's just exploded. And he said, you know, it used to be that um, obviously there have always been people who were into this sick shit, but um, because they had to, if they wanted to take pictures they had to take them to, unless they had like all the chemicals oh, in their, their own yeah. house and they I could see. develop them in their own house, uh, they would have to like go to like a photomat, right? And yeah. give like their, their film. And, uh, you, know, my, my, you, know, you know, the same sister that I was talking about before who worked as a bartender, before that she worked in a, in a photo shop in Alexis Neon Plaza. And there were a couple times where people came in with you know a roll of film and when they looked at it they were like and they called the police right away yeah to come and look at like the the pictures that had been taken and just say and so when the when the person came to pick them up uh they would have like you know two cops waiting there uh in the back to arrest them immediately right so Mm -hmm. um and so this guy was saying sam harris he said like um the the danger with all of this like cryptocurrency and you know encryption and all this stuff and secrecy yes it's good in the sense that like you can prevent big brother from you know looking over your shoulder but it's bad in the sense that this is giving like a number of you know bad guys um a massive kind of uh, advantage right so Um, what, what do you think, how do you sort of make sense of that with regard to brave? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a really difficult issue. Um, that's like the, you know, the bad side when you give people the ability to, you know, protect their own data, people are going to protect data. That is also, that could be bad. Right. Um, and I think, I think just historically when you give um, obviously like that's definitely a legitimate concern. Um, but it turns out that, you know, if you give the NSA uh, a back door into people's <laughs> data or onto their routers, which is, I think was something that was disclosed by Edward Snowden or something. Um, they had, you know, the, the, all these router companies, networking device companies were, you know, basically gave the NSA uh, a secret code that would let them decrypt everything. Um, they tend to always overstep their bounds, right? So it's it's that like it's that the the standard you know utilitarian ethical dilemma <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely difficult. Um, I think we, I think Brave, you know, gives people the tools to actually uh, take care or, or take back their privacy, and I think the majority of people are not child molesters and. And uh, of course, you know, not. of course, not. Child, 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 yeah, yeah, child pornographers. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's I definitely. Just know, I just know that, like, the sort of the, the, the NSA types, the Patriot Act types, the yeah. the Chinese Communist Party, the like, you know, the, there's various kind of you know institutions in the world that they are going to they're going to bring this objection, right? And when they bring this objection. They're not going to bring it in the sense of like, hey, we'd really like to have a backdoor so that we can spy on you. 
they, you know, they're going to bring the most compelling arguments, right? And the most compelling argument is, is going to be, you know, like the Harper government did here in Canada, like when the various tech uh, giants didn't want to like give CSIS a backdoor into what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Harper said, you guys are defending the objectification and exploitation of children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, you know, uh, buy this product or I'll shoot this puppy right now, right? Like, it's it's sort yeah, of like yeah. this is going to be the strongest trolley problem, you know, articulation of the argument. And I'm just yeah. wondering if, um, you know, I don't expect you to have an answer to it because I think to some extent it's a disingenuous question, but. I'm just wondering what your sort of your response is to it. So you're you're basically saying like, yeah, well, you know, there is no good response to it, right? Yeah, like it seems to be, uh, you know, part of the cost uh, of privacy. However, um, I will say I think maybe I think if there are certain protocols that are very very hard for the NSA to crack, but um, if you have any sort of large operation going on, the NSA has the money and the time and the technology and a lot of technology we probably don't know about um, that can probably nail you. Uh, yes. So I think like if you're just a regular person, um, you, you've increased the cost, you know, enough of trying to crack, you know, your stuff. Maybe, maybe they have a bunch of supercomputers and uh, it, it would take them, you know, four years to crack you, but like, why would they, why would they waste four years of computing power cracking you if you're a regular person? But at the same time, as a regular person, now you're not getting your data, you know, just hoovered up by all these corporations and it being, you know, leaked everywhere. So you win, but you know, people who are actually, you know, big time child pornographers and so on, or running these big operations, uh, they're still, they're going to, the, the, the benefit of catching them is going to be high enough where, you know, those people will still get caught by the NSA, but, you know, everyone else will, their data will be hidden enough where it's not worth it for the NSA to collect your data. Whereas before, everything was pretty much in the open. So, you know, a lot of regular people would get owned, you know, by that system too. So I think, you know, at least going in a pro-privacy direction, uh, it's possible that you, you know, give refuge to these uh, pornographers. But I think actually in the grand scheme of things, what you're actually doing is protecting regular people who are otherwise unprotected. And then you're allowing the NSA now like to really just focus their efforts on the people who deserve to be caught. And like even people in the privacy community say, they say, you know, no one's safe from the NSA, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. No, I know. I know my, my, uh, my, my son, Tristan, <laughs> one of his, uh, <laughs> Well, his his best friend basically is like a super kind of privacy guy. He's like really obsessed with privacy to to an extent that seems uh, seemed to me and to my wife in the past is kind of like obsessive, like really intense. But mm-hmm. he he said to to Tristan a couple of years ago, a year or two ago, he said he'd learned like so much more about how this stuff works and. He basically said the same thing as you. He said, "He said, you know, if they if they want to know what's going on with you, um, 
they're going to figure it out. Like they, they, they yeah. have such, but it, it requires that they are really focused on you. Yes. And, uh, and, and he was saying all these, all these things, which, um, at the time when, when his, his best friend told me this, I thought it was almost like paranoid schizophrenic stuff. I've since found out that everything he said was a hundred percent true. Yeah. Yeah. But he, he said like they can measure the, uh, the, it was like the heat resonance off of your screen. And so they can have like something kind of that is reading the heat signature of your screen. And so even if you have like, you know, various ways of like protecting your data, they just need to be, have something that can measure the, uh, the heat resonance of coming off of your screen. Mm -hmm. And that will be enough to actually tell like what you're typing. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, I was like, oh my god, <laughs> yeah, like all these like really kind of crazy, crazy things that. Uh, so, but yeah, his, his point was, it's basically you're, you know, it's like somebody who's trying to like running like a needle exchange program. You're, you're doing like a harm reduction strategy. <laughs> like, there's yeah. no way to have like a hundred percent safety. You can have like a harm reduction strategy. Um, and you know, it sounds like this, the, the brave thing is sort of saying it, right? Like it's not, it's not going to be airtight. It's just, you know, it, it's going to protect you from the kind of mass you know, yes. Facebook and Google Cambridge analytics or where, as you put it, they're hoovering up your data and selling it to the highest bidder. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, I think that's probably the best response to it, uh, which is that what we're stopping is the mass surveillance. You know, that's, that's what we're stopping the mass data collection, mass, whatever, uh, you know, mass hoovering of data and so on. Uh, but it's still possible. Um, you know, if you have the time and the energy and the resources to crack a child pornographer's, you know, <laughs> hard drive or, um, you know, figure out, you know, track, you know, who they actually are. Um, but what you do is that you just, protect everybody on mass like and most people are actually good so i think that's the case the the nsa is is um well one of the presumptions of privacy is that the uh, the endpoint hardware is not compromised okay so you know you can you can use all these privacy soft all this privacy software but you know if someone's standing behind you you're screwed or uh if they have a camera in your house you're screwed or if you plug in something to your computer you think it's like just your charger but you know, when you were out for lunch, the NSA agent came in and put a little chip inside your, your charger. And now you're loading all kinds of malicious, well, quote unquote, malicious software uh, onto your actual device. It's compromised, right? So I think like the NSA now, they can focus just on that instead of hoovering up everyone's data because the cost has been raised, you know, so high. The bar has been raised so high that it's no longer or it's less feasible to just, you know, collect data en masse. And I mm. think that's what Brave is basically doing and ushering in like that kind of paradigm. So I, that's, you know, that, that's really good that you made me think about that because I think but that's does, probably. Does Brave fun. take like, a, you know, I'm curious, does, does Brave take like um, a, a very sort of strong libertarian stance and say like, you know, we will not, um, you know, give up our users no matter what, or does, does Brave sort of say as an organization, 
And I, I recognize, yeah, I'm sort of putting you on the spot here because I'm sorry. <laughs> no <laughs> but, problem. Because I know, like, this is like your, I just found out recently this is your job. But, like, um, I'm wondering, like, do they sort of take uh, a really strong ideological libertarian stance on this? Or do they basically say, like, if, if, uh, you know, if, if the Singaporean government or the American government or the uh, Finnish government or the Canadian government comes to them and says, we have this, you know, your customer, this user who we have like a lot of evidence is running like a child pornography ring. Mm-hmm. Um, would, would brave basically, you know, sort of go to the mat for that person or would they say like for that user or would they say we're going to cooperate with, with the, uh, the authorities and help them go after this person? Yeah. So the, so we are able to just avoid all of that. So we, (laughs) we kind of, so for instance, we never collect users data in the first place. So they can't really come to us and be like, Hey, you have a bunch of people's, you have someone's data that is otherwise encrypted that you maybe could decrypt or could help this decrypt. Um, like, please give it up or something. Um, because we don't even collect the data in the first place. Um, there is one place where, uh, where, you know, this really comes to the fore, which is when you try to cash out money. Right. So I told you that we pay people, we pay users 70% of the ad revenue. Um, but the reality is you can't, according to financial regulations, just, you know, pass money through a system because that's like, you know, money laundering <laughs> on steroids. So uh, yes. we actually have to comply with um, financial regulations, so anti-money laundering regulations. And so if you want to take the um, money outside the platform, what we actually do is we say, hey, like, you're going to need to connect it up to, let's say, uh, some kind of exchange or some bank regulated exchange um, you're going to do ID verification with them. And then, uh, then you can pull out your money. So we basically offload all of those decisions onto other third parties. So, you know, regulated entities um, at the edge, or we just don't collect the data in the first place. So people can't come after us, you know, to begin with. Okay. Yeah. So this is like, I mean, because there was a similar situation where I think we, we talked about this a couple of years ago uh, with regard to uh, Airbnb, right? Where there was, there was a situation where there were a number of like criminal organizations, which were basically, you know, getting properties like big kind of buildings and stuff like that. And then we're renting out, um, apartments or you know condos and stuff like that like on Airbnb and we're collecting all this money and uh, when Airbnb started being more transparent about uh, the payouts this <laughs> was a complete disaster oh. for the various criminal organizations <laughs> because they were and they were like suddenly like they could see like where the money was going to. And so it was, uh, it was a, a big disaster. So you're saying brave is like that from the get go. Yeah. Like so, yeah. So brave, brave. We just don't collect the data in the first place. However, uh, we do comply with money, la- money laundering 
regulations. So, you know, if you're, let's say you're like a, 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 a child molester or something and you're like a convicted, you know, something like that. Um, and you, when you try to pull out money from the brave platform, you know, maybe somehow you figure out a way to try to launder money through our platform. You won't be able to pull it out unless you, um, you know, complete ID verification with a regulated financial institution. So that's the only way to actually pull money out of the system. Um, yeah. So that's the way that we comply there, but we personally, we don't collect the data ourselves. So we just say here, we're going to let another entity take care of it. Um, so basically government can never come to us and be like, Hey, you ID verified like this many people, you have this, these people's data, you know, show us, show us the data, give it to us. We just don't collect any of the data in the first place. So Google actually has this slogan or this motto, uh, that says, don't be evil. Um, and our, (laughs) yeah. And our response to that is basically can't be evil. So we just avoid taking the data in the first place. You don't need to trust us. You know, like we're just trying to get rid of uh, any of a centralized point, um, you know, in us. And if you're the, the responsibility really falls on you as an individual person. And I think it's kind of the same point as we were talking about before, like what this, what this prevents is mass, uh, mass surveillance or mass data collection, which can lead to mass data leakage but at the same time still makes it possible for individual people to be, you know, caught when they need to be. But we usually ourselves, you know, excuse ourselves from that conversation. Have you seen, you know, I mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation, but have you seen the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma? I haven't seen The Social Dilemma. Of course I've seen The Social Network. uh, Yeah, no, no, no. It just came out. Like, it just came out. There were... Um, a number of very, very powerful corporations, including mm. Facebook and Twitter and Google, that were um, spending a huge amount of money and a lot of lawyers to try and prevent this documentary from coming out. Oh, I see. It. Uh, yes. They were trying to like they were completely trying to prevent this from like coming out, uh, but it, it finally came out um, recently, and it's. So good. I mean, it's so it it's so good. I I you know I watched it. I I found it really disturbing. I I ended up like sort of staying up like half the night. I I I assigned it to all of my classes. I had all of my students watch it, and I've had them do like an assignment based on it. Um, it's mm-hmm. really 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 good, um, but. Wow. You know, at the end, at the end of the documentary, um, unfortunately, I, I wish they had sort of incorporated this into the actual documentary. But during the credits, they ask all of these people who are founders of Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and Google and stuff like that. People are like, you know, one of them is like a billionaire. A bunch of them are like worth hundreds of millions of dollars. These are like super, super rich people who are in their kind of, uh, you know, late 20s, 30s and stuff like that. And founding fathers and a couple of mothers of the world that we live in. And um, and they asked them, what are some concrete things that you can do uh, to actually, you know, harm reduction strategies? Mm-hmm. And they, they give a bunch of really good strategies. And it, it seems to me 
you know, as you've been talking about like what Brave does, that um, an obvious like solution to the problems that um, the social dilemma points up would be to switch to Brave. Yes. Like it just like, cause they say, you know, there's all these people there and they say like, okay, immediately go into your iPhone right now, go into settings, uh, disable all the notifications. And they, they say, go into all these different things. They're like, disable this, disable that, disable that, uh, do this, do that, change this. Uh, um, and it seems like an obvious sort of additional point that people could do if they wanted to sort of you know, harm reduction strategy would be to switch to brave. Yeah. Right. So um, I think it's the only, I think it's the only way of getting out of this because um, any other solution, you can't have a 90% solution uh, to this because if you're, if the underlying system collects your data in the first place, it's going to be abused and it's going to be used in ways that you don't expect. Um, and, and that's why you can't just trust not going to do bad with it. And even if they're not bad intentioned, there are people who are, you know, uh, bad intentioned. And if you collect all the data into a centralized spot, it's going to become, you know, a hotspot for them to attack. Okay. And it's only going to take so long for there to be, you know, a leak, whether or not that's a, like a, a software hack or some social engineering hack, it's going to happen. We basically every single company that's ever collected you know, data on mass has had, uh, you know, data leakages and, and failures. For instance, I think in the past week, Razer, they make all like the gaming hardware and stuff like gaming keyboards and all that stuff. They just leaked a hundred thousand, uh, people's customers data, right? So if you ever col- collected data in the first place, something bad is going to happen. So the only way to actually solve this problem is to just not collect it in the first place. That's why Brave really represents, I think, like a break from, from the existing paradigm. Because everyone will say like, oh, I'm a little better, I'm a little better, I'm a little better. But they don't actually solve the root problem, which is the data collection in the first place. Because you don't have to do it. They think that, oh, we need to have data collection. It's, it's necessary. You know, it's like an axiom. We can't get rid of it. It's the only way the internet can work. But we're, what we're saying is, no, you're actually wrong. You actually can do it in a way that, you know, doesn't depend on data collection and mass surveillance. You just weren't clever enough. And that's what Brave tries to... This is so fucked up, Chris. I just looked this up, what you just said. I know a bunch of people who are, like, hardcore gamers. I didn't hear about yeah. this Razor leak you're talking about. I just looked yeah. it up. Oh, my God. Razor yeah. leaks 100,000 plus gamers personal info no need to breach any systems when the vendor gives the data away for free holy shit i i had <laughs> i had no idea that's crazy they like they uh this redacted sample record of the leaked elastic search data shows someone's june 24th purchase of a $2600 gaming laptop oh my god um, wow. That's, that's crazy. Like that's a, uh, you know, I, I recently, um, I don't know if you heard about this in the news, but here in Quebec, um, all of the, uh, educators, anybody who's like connected with the department of education here in Quebec, uh, Annalise and I both got a letter in the mail saying that 
they got hacked. The Department of Education got hacked and all of the personal information of the educators in Quebec was leaked. And so they mm-hmm. said, uh, you know, you should be monitoring um, Equifax and various other like carefully to see if people are opening credit cards in your name. <laughs> and so we've been, yes, we've been like looking into this and um, you know, that's, that's amazing. So this gaming company was doing the same thing. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like, like the future of security is to rather than, you know, collecting the data and guarding it, especially well, uh, which doesn't seem to work very well. I mean, we've had numerous, we had that CIBC leak a number of years ago, the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce leaked all sorts of data. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, maybe like the brave model where you just, you know what, just don't even, <laughs> don't, don't send it to like the common turn. Don't, don't send it to the central authority in the first place. Exactly. And then maybe that's like the safest place you know, just don't ever send it to a central authority in the first place. Exactly. Because you, all you're doing is you're just, you know, you're broadcasting the fact that you have a giant vault full of gold. That's basically what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep the gold under your mattress, okay? It makes it a lot harder for the criminals. Um, but um, it, what's funny is that, like, underlying this are how computers work. So back in the day when computers were brand new, um, when I say brand new, I mean like in like the seventies, you know, or, you know, really early on in computer technology, um, everything was centralized, right? You had this big, you know, university computer and everyone just hooked up a ter- terminal to it. And then in the nineties with the development of the personal computer, um, late eighties, nineties, you get a decentralization of computation. So everything starts, you know, now everyone has a laptop that can actually do all the computations themselves. You don't need to send it to the central university computer, right? But then it looks like recently since the 2000s, right, the 2010s, we're kind of reverting back to the old 1970s model where now it's all about cloud computing and you're sending all of your data back into the cloud. And I guess Brave is, I guess, on the bleeding edge of the return back to a decentralization of data and, and computation. Hmm. Well, it's uh, another question I had to just occurred to me was I know that um, WordPress, right, which is the the software that is kind of the backbone of the blogos- blogosphere, right? A lot of the a lot of kind of blogs are powered by uh, WordPress software. A lot of websites and things like that, mm-hmm. um, and WordPress for a long time the one of the things in terms of like how they set themselves up as an organization is they're very distributed. So there's a lot of people here in Montreal that I know who um, were doing coding for WordPress. And one of, when they would describe to me how the organization worked, it, it always sounded completely wacky to me because um, it's, they don't really have like a, a central campus you know, the way that Microsoft or Google or, or Amazon or something like that, they, they, it's very distributed and people work in different places and they get together kind of once a year at, you know, in Hawaii or something like that. And they have like, everybody goes there 
and they meet up with people that they've mostly just seen online until then. And, um, it, you know, it seems to work very well for WordPress. And I'm wondering, um, you know, for, in terms of telling my, <laughs> telling my students where they should apply in the future, uh, how does a place like Brave, I mean, clearly you're here in Montreal like I am, and, uh, but you're working for Brave. So where, where is this thing located? Like, how are they setting up their, their, their business model in terms of like who works for them and how they stay in contact with each other? Yeah. So we have a really distributed team. Um, our head, our headquarters are actually in San Francisco. Uh, we also had uh, offices in London. Um, but right now, like the main, the big HQ is in, uh, is in, is in San Francisco. So, uh, we have, you know, a corporation set up for the Canadian employees, but it's, you know, it's not really like a, an office. It's kind of just like a corporation for legal purposes. Um, and what, the way that we stay in touch basically is through Slack, uh, which is a chat software for work and for teams. And we use Zoom a lot. Um, we actually have our own version of Zoom that uh, we're trying to, you know, offer as a privacy alternative. It's called Brave Together. And if you actually just go to, I think, together.brave.com, you can boot up a, uh, a a chat just like this on Zoom, except it's just there in your browser. <laughs> you don't need to download, like, additional software. It just loads and it works right away. Uh, so that's what we use at Brave Together. We use Zoom to stay in touch. And... Um, the thing is, we're lucky that we're in. So, software. how would you? Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like this is yeah. actually, you know, right up my. This is very practical question to you right now. Um, the my wife works at Dawson, and they they have done like most academic institutions since the pandemic. They mm-hmm. went with Zoom, but mm-hmm. then they ran into all these problems where Zoom is not very stable and it's not very secure. And so they had people like kind of hacking into classes and posting like porn things. <laughs> you, <and> Billy, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say this on the interview. I'll tell you privately later on, but like, like some crazy shit, Chris, <laughs> really, really, wow. like really, really crazy. Like where it was very, very unstable. Um, mm-hmm. At John Abbott, they looked at this stuff the, the problems with Zoom and they went with Microsoft Teams mm-hmm. um, and and Microsoft Teams is not as um, it's not as smooth as Zoom but apparently it's much more um, secure, right? So that's mm-hmm. all my classes are happening through Microsoft Teams. So oh, wow. if I understand you correctly, you're telling me that, that, that Brave has a product that can do this shit that is like even more secure than either of them. Yeah. So at least one on, so that, that, that's like, that's like really important right now, Chris. Uh, yeah. Everything's <laughs> online now. Yes. And yes. it's probably, everything's going to be online in 2021. So if you have a product that's actually better than these two things, that's, like a massive market share that, that you're leaving on the table. Yeah, that's exactly why uh, we came into this space. It was because of the whole COVID pandemic. And we realized everything was going online and we wanted to basically offer a Zoom 
you know, alternative that was right in the browser. You don't need to download additional software. It's just, you get just right there in the browser. It's that simple. You know, uh, you can try it out, you know, after this, you can just go to together.brave.com. You can screen share, you can do everything. And we actually built it on the, uh, a lot of the code on top of Jitsi and Jitsi is a completely open source, you know, video conferencing software. So we can't hide anything from you. It's all open source. And uh, yeah, it works extremely, extremely well. In my opinion, the audio is actually better than on Zoom. It sounds like more hi-fi. And uh, so there's there's two interesting questions to talk about with respect to encryption um, and video. So peer-to-peer, let's say it's just, um, or just one-on-one, right? If we have a one-on-one video call, that is actually peer-to-peer. So the data doesn't need to be sent to a central server, like your video does not need to be sent to a central server. It's actually sent directly from, let's say, me to you, okay? And this can be completely encrypted. The problem uh, with all video software right now is that there's no way, or video conferencing software, is that there's no way to have a conference with many, many people, let's say like 10 people or 100 people, where um, you have the entire thing encrypted and just peer-to-peer. The reason being that you need like uh, every single person needs to connect to every other person and you can see how that's exponential and there's no way to, to handle that amount of data in any sort of, um, I mean, so far in any sort of manageable way. So um, right now we're working with uh, and we're waiting on, on Jitsi as well and helping them where we can on developing like a fully encrypted video chat service. But if we're basically just one-on-one, um, our service, like Together Brave or together.brave.com, is encrypted. Uh, if you have a multi-party uh, video conference, I think it's coming soon. Uh, like, and really, like in the entire video industry, it does not exist where you have multi-party uh, end-to-end encryption. Like, it's a really, really difficult problem to solve. Oh, and I think what you were talking about when when Zoom started being used for universities was that you had a, a bunch of zoom bombing. I think that was a big thing where that's exactly you know, what I was referring to. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So what we do, uh, we, when you create a zoom or sorry, when you create a together brave room, we make sure that the, uh, the name of the room is some long, uh, like string. So it's like GX five, blah, 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 blah. Some long, long string that cannot be guessed. And you can obviously copy paste that to people. It's just a link, but people who are, people can't really bomb that because it's not really possible for them to guess that string. It would take them like, you know, on average 4 billion years to guess a correct string where there's people actually sitting in the, in the conference. And you can also add passwords onto your call anyway. So yeah, well there's, you know, like, like, you know, I mentioned this, this really disturbing episode of Sam Harris's making sense podcast we had this guy from the FBI on um, on his episode on his his show, and like he said that the number one most common software uh, platform that child pornography people use right now in the world is Zoom. Oh wow! And he, yeah, yeah, it's the most common one, and he talks about this one. Uh, you know, thing that happened very recently, which is uh, it was uh, a big sting operation. It happened in Toronto 
And it was this uh, RCMP officer um, who figured out in, in the dark web and stuff like that. And she got an inv- a Zoom invitation to a conversation. And it was this guy who was um, a, a Canadian guy who was um, actually like like raping this kid. And people all over the world were like, you know, tuning into the zoom thing right wow it's just it's yeah it's like it makes you want to throw up it's like so just anyway but uh you know i remember when i when i heard this on his show i i thought you know of course of of course they've had all this problem with like zoom bombing i think like this is a very unsecure platform yeah like this is just like a really really and so um we have uh, we have at Abbott uh, we're we're going with with Microsoft Teams and they've had so much problems at Dawson College with Zoom that they're they're trying to sort of um, for next semester they're pretty sure that they're going to move towards Microsoft Teams. I've I've heard this from a lot of different uh, academic friends, but if if you guys uh, you know at Brave can do something better right something that is more because the the thing that i know that my uh director general and people sort of running at john abbott college what they're worried about is everything's online now so all my classes are online so i'm having conversations with uh with students online on this platform microsoft teams and it's you know some of these students are, are minors they're younger than 18 and so you can see their picture, sometimes their video, and mm-hmm. they're talking about things, uh, sometimes sort of personal things in the conversation. Uh, and the, the, the fear is that, you know, can somebody sort of from the outside um, be taping this or monitoring this and yeah, then yeah. kind of using this information you know i mean think about it like you, you were a student in my class years ago i mean imagine if you were 17 years old in my class my intro to philosophy class and you're with like your peers and you're saying personal things about your um your upbringing and your family <laughs> situation and you're you're, you're talking in, in pursuit of a, a philosophical discussion, you know, imagine if you've got a video camera in the room, right? Like filming all of that and, you know, sketchy people on the outside can see it, right? Like that's what they're, uh, they're worried that, that that can happen. And if brave can offer a solution to that problem that allows us to have those conversations in a pandemic friendly way um, without that fear of it being, you know, bombed or used. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, it, <laughs> that, that is, you know, very, very, very attractive to a lot of administrators in a lot of schools right now. And by right yeah. now, I don't mean like a year from now. I mean a week <laughs> from now. Like if you can yeah. demonstrate that you can do that, uh, that would be, you know, we would, we, I'm pretty sure we would sign up like next week. Yeah. Uh, right now it's, it's free because we're still in 
uh, I would say beta, um, but it's it's free and it has you know basically unlimited number of participants. And if it's a one-on-one call, it's end-to-end encrypted. Um, there's no possibility if you're let's say a one-to-one call. There's no possibility of someone eavesdropping on that or recording it because it's not passing through a central server. It's actually direct from me to you, and the entire tunnel is encrypted. And then the multi-party encryption is something we're working on. Um, but yeah, that's basically what we what we want to create. You can read more about it. For instance, like Engadget covered our uh, new Together Brave Together Brave feature or Brave Together feature. And, you know, the article on Engadget is called Brave's browser now includes a privacy-focused video calling app. You know, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring that. I know Zoom was even reluctant to introduce, you know, some degree of encryption. Uh, They said, like, you know, for free customers or people who are just not using a paid subscription, we're not going to encrypt. And even then, it's not even clear whether or not they truly have end-to-end encryption. They might just have, you know, it's encrypted to the server, they decrypt it, and then they re-encrypt it when they send it out to everybody else. That's normally how these systems work. And I don't know if Zoom is a completely open source either. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, how do you? How far do you think, you know, just, you know, I would say you don't have to have an answer to this, but, like, like how, <laughs> how close do you think they are to, like, having that product? Um, I would say a few months. I would say a few months, yeah. But you can already use it now. It's just that we haven't been doing heavy like marketing promotion for it because it's not uh, like 100% ready for you know prime time uh, yet. But you can already use it and it works very very smoothly. That doesn't mean that it's like rickety right now. It works actually extremely well. <laughs> so it's 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 as simple as going to together.brave.com. The thing is, we just have really high you know software standards and you know privacy standards. So we want to make sure that everything is you know 100% before we ship it out wow if you if you can if you can get them to have that ready to go uh a hundred percent for the winter semester uh you're gonna be vice president of that company (laughs) 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 no because it's i'm telling you like i i hear this in meetings all the time this is uh this is a source of so much anxiety for a lot of administrators and in academic yeah. in uh, in Canada, the United States right now, it's, it's really, really, cause they, you know, everything's, you know, we're expecting a second wave, uh, which means, you know, all of these, all the classes in, in this giant industry, including a lot of high schools um, are going to be online in the winter of uh, 2021. And everybody is, you know, asking the same question how do we meet with these students and have meaningful discussions and classes and interactions in a way that is secure yeah right because you can't you can't be like talking to 16 and 17 year olds on a platform that can be easily hacked by you know weirdos like and you just can't you can't do that right so yeah and so far zoom has been uh, a total total disaster like it, it's been like i i'm not gonna say this on on the air but i'll tell you when we're talking privately but the stuff that like like that i've heard from friends of mine from my wife from like about what has happened on zoom uh it, 
it's terrible. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. like it make it makes Cambridge Analytica look like really oh, little wow. league. That's like, true. yeah, yeah, little league. Yeah. Like, uh, okay, I'll give you one thing I can say uh, without because this is not you know sensitive, but um, somebody taking on the persona of the teacher slash prof um, and contacting a student. Whoa! Through yes, yes. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Wow. Uh, and yeah. <laughs> so, wow. uh, yeah, it, it's very unstable. It's very unsecure. Um, and if you can get into that, that market and provide something that's, that's safer, um, that would be a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. It's the zoom bombing it's ridiculous because you could just solve the zoom bombing by making sure that the, the, like the meeting URL is sufficiently long and like, you know, difficult to guess that no one can just brute force guests, you know, different rooms. Cause that's what people were doing. Like zoom, let's say the like zoom URL, let's pretend is like, you know, six characters long. It's really not hard to guess one where there's people actually in, you know, <laughs> in a room. And that's all these people, these zoom bombers were doing was they were iterating through, like different room name possibilities and then jumping in. And so that's why like right when we launched uh, together.brave, like even just in the testing phase and in beta, um, we made sure to enforce like a long uh, room name so that no one could be able to get, no one would be able to guess it. So yeah, like I actually, in the chat that we have going on now, of course people can't see it, but the the room name that I, right when I created a, a meeting room on together.brave, which I was doing as we were talking, the, the room name is like S two underscore capital A X J P B K. You know, that's fine. You can copy paste that and you can click on it, but it's not something that you can just guess. And that basically solves so many of the zoom bombing problems, uh, you know, just from the get go. And it's surprising that they didn't even do that or take that precaution. It's really crazy. And yeah, and secondly, like um, Brave Together is open source. I think that's a huge, huge, huge part of it. You know, with closed source, you don't you don't know what software you're using. You don't know what's going on under the hood. Uh, when you have it completely open source, like you know Brave Together, uh, you have outside people who can audit, and there there's a whole ecosystem that exists in software where you know we put out uh, you put out security bug bounties where people can find. Uh, exploits in software and then get paid for it, you know, and then there's like a very secure disclosure process to make sure that these bugs get disclosed to everybody. Um, but only after they've been, you know, closed. And so I think like the open, so- open source software community is just a really good way of, you know, vetting, vetting software. Yeah. And that's what, well, that's I, what we're doing. I, I realize um, we are almost out of time. Um, but there's, you know, when I, when I sent out a message to a lot of our listeners and I said, Hey, we're going to have Chris Wynn back on the podcast for the first time in like, you know, 90 episodes or 80 episodes. <laughs> um, I got a bunch of questions back. Um, I, I don't have the time to ask all of them. Um, but one of them that I do want to ask because, uh, it, it was sort of a, a couple of different people asked this question. And I, and I suspect that you probably have a very good answer for it. <laughs> but um, but they they said, um, yeah, you know, Chris Wynn was talking all about, like, 
cryptocurrency and how you know Bitcoin and all these blockchain was like the future. Uh, and they said, uh, but you know, doesn't he realize that uh, you know as soon as the pandemic hit, these things like lost like you know, huge percentage of their value within like the first you know month or so of the of the pandemic. Um, so, uh, what is, what is your response? Did the, did the pandemic prove that, um, the currency is bullshit? <laughs> I don't think so because the stock markets also went to, to crashed uh, very, very hard in March when COVID was really starting to, you know, crystallize in everyone's minds. Um, the cryptocurrency has actually rebounded a lot. So the, the day where it actually crashed was March 12th. Um, I remember that day very clearly. I was watching everything uh, collapse. Um, and since then, it's shot right back up. So I think Bitcoin went down to about 3,300, 3,300 to 3,800. And now, like t- as of today, right now, it's 10,718. So if you put how your money... That, how, does that, how does that compare to pre-COVID? Oh, yeah. So it actually recovered pretty much back to pre-COVID, uh, which it was around uh, this price as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of the stuff in, in cryptocurrency, it's crazy because people were spending a lot of time at home, actually. And, uh, you know, they were like, oh, what can I do? They're kind of twiddling their thumbs. And um, they started to look into, you know, online currencies. They were like, oh, I can't really hand cash to people. Uh you know, in real life. And there are certain limitations of online payments uh, right now or traditional finance. But uh, so, so people got really interested in cryptocurrency, you know, during COVID, surprisingly, you know, I didn't expect it. And it's just been really like surging <laughs> ever since March 12th. It's pretty crazy. And I guess the last thing I'll say is um, in the past few months, um, there's been this whole new space in crypto that has opened up. It's called decentralized finance. And it's basically, you know, all the things that you would be used to in traditional in the traditional finance world. Like um, you can uh, invest your money, you can get interest on it. You know, you can have a savings account, uh, you could have derivatives, so on and so forth. But all of it is actually happening now on the blockchain and uh, in a decentralized way. And people are realizing that they don't need to go to a bank to, you know, put their money into like a measly, uh, you know, savings account or something to get interest. They can actually just put their money onto the blockchain and earn interest. So that's been like a really, really big thing in the past few months. It's DeFi. It's DeFi everything uh, these days. <laughs> no, well, I, I, you know, after we first talked about this, after we like, we were, had a, had a drink at Elsa's, I remember like you, you told me this and I, I went on this like deep dive, uh, sort of fascinated by something that you had mentioned Um after you dropped me off and we're done at my mom's place to go kill hornets, <laughs> like where you had said that there were these people who were getting their stimulus check from the American government oh, and they were immediately buying um, like either, either Bitcoin or stocks off of this. And they were showing how much their money was like you know, multiplying. And, and this is just, wild i mean this is like usually what you think is like late night uh infomercials that are lying to you but it's actually real mm-hmm. yep it's, it's crazy 
The, so one of the main exchanges, like a very um, popular exchange is called Coinbase. You know, that's where all the, the noobs and the retail people go. You know, it's basically the, the gateway into the crypto world. And uh, according to the CEO of Coinbase, um, there was a 4x increase in deposits of exactly $1,200 uh, in, <laughs> in the month of the stimulus check, which is exactly how much people received. <laughs> so people were spending their money on Bitcoin and I think that's probably why it, it rebounded so quickly, you know, to be honest. So Part of wild. That. Wow. Yeah, it's really crazy. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And um, I, I highly recommend that uh, all of our listeners go and check out, uh, check out Brave. Uh, it, just seems like, it just seems like one of those things where yeah, it's it's like you know, as I mentioned, it's it's like at the end of uh, the social dilemma, which is right now on the top ten most watched shows in Australia, New Zealand, the UK, the United States. Canada. If you look on Netflix, like the top ten most watched shows, um, it's it's on the top ten all over the English speaking world, right? Yeah. So, uh, at the end of the documentary they give a bunch of very sort of boring uh, sort of comments, like things that you could do to as like harm reduction strategies. Um, and I, I would say that, uh, you know, from what I've learned from you and from my own sort of looking into this, it seems like uh, Sting to Brave is one of those, harm reduction strategies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not going to solve your problems completely, but it will definitely, um, you know, we, we have this really big problem in our civilization. Or, you know, I don't know. I, I don't have any big solution to the problem, but there are like some small things that you can do, which will um, make it so that the, the harm is, is less. Right? You'll be less, it's like a Black Mirror episode. <laughs> so, like, and, yeah. uh, you know, more like whatever it is that you want to do and be. Correct. Yeah, if I had to leave everybody with a, a final comment, um, it's really easy. Just go to brave.com. You can download it. It's basically Google Chrome with all the spyware ripped out. You can import and duplicate your Chrome workspace in literally 10 seconds or less. Uh, so there's no, you know, friction or pain that you have to go through. It looks pretty much like Chrome. Uh, so you know where everything is. And the, and one thing that's amazing about it is that we actually built in a kind of Patreon system into the, into the browser itself. So uh, when you earn tokens for viewing ads, if you choose to do so, you can actually tip your favorite creators. So if you're, let's say you own uh, likevillepodcast.com, if you register that with uh, Brave, you can actually receive tips. So that's something that John can do. And then you can support your favorite YouTube channels, your favorite websites, and you can actually tip them just like Patreon, but it's all built into the browser. Wow. Well, I, I will definitely be switching to, to Brave uh, this evening. <laughs> so, um, and that's not just because you're my friend. It's because I'm actually, I'm actually, after watching that social dilemma documentary, I'm, I'm really kind of creeped out and scared and yeah. I want to like do whatever I can to like 
better the situation. So, uh, yeah, yeah, anything that makes me more secure, I'm, uh, I'm totally psyched. So awesome. anyway, thank yeah. you, Chris. Uh, I, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. And, uh, uh, we should definitely hang out and have beers again sometime soon. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so take much care. for having me. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye. Yeah.